Welcome to Wednesday night pastor's class as we're going through books of the Bible this week. We are following through in the book of Philippians. We started it just a couple of weeks ago. We're not very far into the book of Philippians. And, and honestly, you can read uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians, and there's there are lots of similarities. I love uh, Philippians because it with uh, Colossians is really encouraging. I mean, right from the very beginning, uh, as you go into chapter one, you hear Paul encouraging the church. And so as this, as we go to this this afternoon, what we uh, find is Paul actually praying for the church. So what I hope to do is just take the passage, walk through it, and, uh, and just talk about some of the things that we as Christians can pray for people. So let's pray, and uh, I'll read the passage, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this encouraging book. I pray that you would take your word and by your spirit that you would strengthen our hearts, that you make us better, more earnest followers of Christ. And so help us this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by uh, reading the passage. What I want to do, although we'll, we'll focus on verse 9 through 11, I'd like to back up one verse uh, to verse 8 and just get a feel for what Paul is saying in this passage as it goes into the prayer. So let me just start by reading in verse 8. <clears throat> for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Here comes the prayer, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So you, you hear uh, the prayer there starts in verse 9. You back up to verse 8, and you, <clears throat> you feel uh, Paul's affection for the church at Philippi. And, and so what you find there is this example for us that the people that we love are those that we should be praying for. So you see that, that affection in verse 8 is affection in Christ Jesus. And learning to pray for me and you is a really a great sign of spiritual maturity. When you pray, it shows that you actually do uh, trust God. When you pray, uh, you, it shows that you have confidence that God hears the prayers of his people. When you pray, you are displaying a genuine faith that uh, you're not a practical atheist. You actually do believe that God is Father, hears his children. When you pray, you end up uh, living out theology. So around Hickory Grove, you hear us talk a lot about the sovereignty of God is in control and, and honestly, the more you believe in the sovereignty of God, the more you're going to want to pray because the more you're showing you actually do believe God can do these things. Well, Paul believed that. And as you go through this prayer, you could put it in five. I think John MacArthur put five categories. I, I would prefer to put it in seven. I think there are seven things that we can pray for people in our lives. So Paul prayed seven things for the Christians there at Philippi. But uh, let's think about who we should be praying for. So last weekend at Hickory Grove, we had our school's graduation. 
this week and the following week, most of the schools will be graduating young men and women, many of whom we know that are believers, are coming out of high school, either going into the workforce or going to college, or some are taking a gap year, which is something new. Uh, but anyway, taking a gap year, and uh, we need to be praying for them. So what are the things we can pray for graduates or, or maybe uh, for your children? Like you want to pray for your children every day. You think, what do I pray for my son or my daughter? Or if you're seeking to be a good husband or wife, you think, I want to pray for my spouse. And so you, uh, you run out of things to say and pray for. If you're praying that God would lead God and direct and lead God and direct and it just sort of get circular, um, there are things that we can pray from the Bible. And I think this passage actually gives us a really good sort of prayer list to pray for specific things. You can pray for your spouse. You can pray for your friends. If you've got nobody to pray for, you can pray for me. Uh, take these seven things and pray them. What do we pray? Well, the first one is that we would be loving people that our love. In fact, you, you see it there in verse 9. Notice what the text says. Verse 9, it is my prayer, this is Paul praying, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. You know what's interesting there? Is he didn't actually say who he's praying that they will love more and more. So this, there's this general, general feeling or sense of how they should be living and not necessarily who they're supposed to be loving. So there's not an object for their love. Now, you, uh, if you've studied the Bible any time, you know the different words for love, and sometimes feel like it gets common to hear, but it's important that we pause and think, what is this he's praying for? It is a word that uh, was not in classical Greek that is in biblical Greek. It is the word agape. It is this selfless love. It's Love is the, the virtue in Christians that surpasses all others. So we, we pray that, uh, that, that your children would be children that are able to love. I mean, if, you, if you're able to love people with this, this godly, uh, decisive, selfless, if you were defining agape love, I would say it just words. It's, it's godly. It's decisive, that is to say, you, you make the decision to love and then you do it. It is active. Uh, this love is selfless. It's not transactional. I'll, I'll love you if you love me. No, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the love that God has for his people. In fact, I'm reading in my quiet time uh, this morning and uh, get to Hosea. And, and Hosea is commanded by God to go and marry a woman who is a prostitute and who will cheat on him. He knows that going in, and he is to love her anyway. And that becomes a, a, a parable of how God loves his people. And, and he gives us that kind of love to have for others. And this is what Paul is praying, that that love is active. It's forgiving. In fact, you'll see in the text, look with me in verse 9. I, I pray, verse 9, is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In other words, this increasing, this love continues to grow for people. It becomes the number one indicator. I mean, read what John wrote in 1 John. 
that people will know us by the way we love one another, it becomes the number one indicator of a Christian. Now, certainly there are so many other things that, that come with being a Christian. We've got to hold the line on truth. Or we've got to stand on right doctrine. We've got to live in a way that is, that is righteous. But if, if all of that is happening um, and genuine love is not there, well, do you remember what Paul said? In fact, I, I'd like to read to you what Paul said uh, about love in chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, listen to this. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy, clang, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith enough to remove mountains and don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned and I don't have love, I gain nothing. And then listen to the things he says about the way we are to love people. Start in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not <clears throat> rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. You, you can go back and look at 1 Corinthians 13. You get the idea that uh, we should be praying uh, for our children. For You pray for me. If you're praying for someone, you tell them you're praying for them. You can just pray, just like Paul did. I'm praying that uh, your love will abound more and more. That's one thing. Pray for love. <clears throat> the second thing uh, that Paul lists here is the word knowledge. Do you see it in verse 9? Look what the text says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. I would circle that word. It's gnosko is the Greek word. It's the general idea of getting a full understanding. And it's one of the things that we should pray for the next generation coming behind us. It should be a prayer for ourselves. You, you pray for me in that regard. When we pray for people, we are praying that their knowledge of God. <clears throat> when I think of knowledge, I'm thinking about a knowledge of God, about a, a systematic theological understanding of how the world works, a God-centered approach. That means that we pray that people will know the Bible more, that will understand God more, that will know what it means to be a Christian more. Uh, this this concept of praying that the truth of God will prevail in people's hearts. And I'm, I'm thinking about our graduates right now. Going into a world where there's this strange fluidity with morality uh, that we've sort of com completely come off the base of what most societies uh, in, in Western Europe and the United States were, were founded on, at least some sort of remnant of Christian thought, and, and that is completely gone with the subjective morality. Now, we can, we can bemoan that, and we should, but what we should also do is make sure that we are grounded, grounded in truth. And so I pray for our students. I pray for our young married adults. I pray for our senior adults uh, that maybe have been a Christian for a long time and never actually drilled deep into who God is and what it means to be a Christian. These are good things to pray for people. We pray for a, a, a bounding love and a growth in, in truth. 
let me give you uh, something else. Not just uh, truth or I call it knowledge. We should pray for discernment. Look with me again at verse 9. <clears throat> it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So that's love. And with knowledge, there's the next one. And all discernment. That's the third one, discernment. Uh, that word discernment, you can circle it there in, in verse 9. It's the only place it shows up in the entire New Testament. It's, it's an unusual word. It, it, it means to have a mature insight, to have the view of someone that actually has a little experience. It, it means to have a biblical perception, to be perceptive if, um, if something's not exactly right, to, to be able to tell. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but something is not right. It is a sense that God gives us, and we pray that that would develop. And that develops through life experience, through uh, biblical literacy, knowing the Bible more, through growth as a Christian, through uh, sanctification, in sanctification becoming more like Christ, uh, having more and more of the Holy Spirit, uh, taking over that old nature of who we are. <clears throat> One of the things that we need um, right now is spiritual discernment because uh, in the world we live in, uh, the, the rubric that uh, has been given to us is a rubric of love, which is a good thing. In fact, it's the first thing we prayed for. But if that's all we have, if we have a rubric of uh, rules of love and love is the overwhelming way we treat the world and perceive the world and look at the world, if that's the only thing, then that doesn't have boundaries. What discernment and knowledge do, they give us boundaries within the, the love that God has given us and the way love is expressed and our understanding of what a loving or an unloving thing is to do. For instance, is it loving to tell someone that they need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if the issue is pressed, is it loving to say that without Christ, you will in fact go to hell because that's where your sins will take you? Now, you can package that however you want, um, but the most loving thing we can do is, is say that, is to convey that truth. Or, a little more closer to home where we live, <clears throat> what about with gender fluidity, uh, with homosexuality with LGBTQ and whatever letter you want to put there, is it loving to say, while as a Christian, I, I, I see you and your dignity as a human, but as a Christian, I also view how you're living as an affront to God and a sin. I mean, just coming out of my mouth, it sounds like an unloving thing, but truthfully, uh, it is the most loving thing to speak the truth of God, to do it with humility, to do it with affection. But that takes discernment. It takes real discernment for us to, to stand in this raging river of changing morality and, and be able to actually show affection but hold on to the truth of God. That, that's where discernment shows up. And so we... You can pray for me that I would have discernment. You pray for uh, your children that they would be discerning. You, you pray for those that are single that one day might get married. You pray for discernment. You pray for 
uh, how to raise your children in this world for discernment, for decisions that have to be made on a career. Do you stay in this career that's going to make you compromise your Christian beliefs? Discernment. It's a really good thing to pray. We pray for uh, love and we pray for knowledge or truth, and we also pray for discernment. I'm going to give you a fourth thing to, <clears throat> to pray for. You can pray for me as you think of these things. The fourth one um, is the word excellence. Excellence. You'll find it right there in verse 10. Go with me to verse 10. Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. So that. You see that word so that? So we're praying for love, and then that word so that uh, is a Greek, is the Greek word hina. It's really I-N-A. It's a hina clause. What that means is it now gives us the purpose. We're we're, we're, this goes into how this is lived out. So verse 10, so that you might approve what is excellent. Let's take those two words, to approve and then what is excellent. The word approve means to, to study, to examine, to investigate, to determine what is best. Okay, so approve is to look at it real hard. So, so that you're able, you're praying for love and knowledge and discernment, so that... You can look at something, you can study it, and you can see that which is excellent. That word excellent, um, excellent, excellence would be the elements of a holy and sanctified life. So that um, if you're praying people have affection, you're praying that they're growing in knowledge, you're praying that they have discernment, so that you can see the things that are going to actually be beneficial to you as a Christian that help you grow. So that believers, men and women, you and I, so that we can um, live our lives at the highest level of spiritual growth and maturity and devotion and obedience. Excellence is going to be living our lives at the highest level of spiritual devotion, um, obedience, and Christ-like. That's what excellence will be. Living your best life now is not going to be uh, having all the things you ever wanted to give you a comfortable life. Living your best life is going to be excellence so that you are functioning at the highest level of, of spiritual devotion and maturity and growth. This is the opposite of carnal Christianity. Or... You might say this is the opposite of cultural Christianity. When I say cultural Christianity or carnal Christianity, here's what I mean. So in the 1980s and 90s, in order to see the church growth, the modern church growth movement came in. The modern church growth movement meant you believe that the Bible is true and you believe that people need Jesus and you would do whatever you needed to do to get them to hear the gospel. Well, that sounds really good and is rightly motivated. The problem is that you start compromising things as, as you have one goal. And that one goal demands that you do whatever it takes to get people into a church. And once you do that, what got them into the church is what you have to do to keep them there. And so you've seen this, this explosion of growth in the 80s and 90s in churches, a lot like Hickory Grove, where you do everything you can to get them in the church. The problem with that is you end up with a church roll of thousands and thousands of people, many of whom, once they get bored with what you're doing in the church, actually don't come anymore. 
And so you have thousands of people on the roll that haven't been to the church in several years, haven't given to the church, would consider themselves as members of the church, but really are not going anywhere. And what you've produced by those means, what you end up producing is a carnal Christian or a cultural Christian. Cultural Christian has some tie to Christianity, but not really converted. And so here's what Paul is praying, that you have real affection, you have love, you have truth, you, you have knowledge, you have uh, discernment. And this word excellence is that you, you're praying that people will be operating at the highest level of maturity. But because I'll tell you, um, carnal Christians or cultural Christianity or a non-practicing or nominal Christianity is actually not Christianity at all. It is another religion. It's not Christianity. Christianity uh, will not allow you to live like the world and still claim Christ as Lord. Now, that's another Bible study altogether, but we're praying for excellence. That's the fourth thing. Let me give you the fifth thing that we pray for. It's very uh, close to it. It's the word holiness. Holiness. Do you see it down there in verse 10? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let's put all of that together. Pure, blameless for the day of Christ. Let's, let's start from the back of that phrase in verse 10. The day of Christ is the day of judgment. So Paul is looking to the day of judgment and he's saying, I want you to be ready. How are you ready for the day of judgment? That you might be pure and also blameless. Uh, that word pure, it's an interesting word. I won't pronounce it in Greek because I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. But it, it means to hold something up to the sunlight and to see if it have cra has cracks or Im impurities. So he says, I want you to be able to be held up to the brightness of the sunlight and see that you're you're living right. And then the other word, blameless, is um, <clears throat> means to to be someone that that doesn't fall into sinful conduct, that doesn't fall into some sinful life that people can point to and say, "Well, I know that person." It it's um it's what we might call a moral failure, so so that there's not some big stain on your record when you get to the day of judgment so that your life is pure and blameless. So we're praying for holiness. I'll give you two more. <clears throat> Here's the sixth one. If you're going to pray for me and pray for people you love, you can pray for Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. It's a broad term, but you'll find it in verse 11, at least the idea of it, that we might be, feel, we might be filled with the fruit. See that word? The fruit of righteousness. So filled with, with righteousness that actually does something, that, that has a product, that there is a harvest out of the righteousness. <clears throat> a good way to think of this would be, um, it, think of righteousness in two ways. So I'll give it to you in two ways. Think of the imputed, I-M-P-U-T-E-D, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Here's what I mean. When we become Christians, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So that's substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. That's what we believe. We also believe that as he took our sin, he 
gave us his righteousness. You might hear me say the active righteousness or the earned righteousness of Jesus. When I say the earned righteousness of Jesus, what I mean is that he lived on this earth as a man in the place of men and women. And as he lived, he followed all the law of God, kept every one of them. He never sinned, and thereby he earned, in the place of men and women, righteousness. At the cross, he puts that righteousness on us and takes away our sin so that when God sees us, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ in us. That's a, that's a really great thing. It's one of the Protestant Reformation great doctrines that has freed us from this, this religion of legalism. It is the righteousness of Christ. So that's a, that's a one-time thing. It's important. But the fruit of righteousness is a righteousness that is lived. And the best display of a righteousness that is given, the imputed righteousness of Christ, is a life that is lived out in a Christ-like fashion that gives evidence, that gives, the Paul uses the word fruit, that gives the fruit of what God has done in you. But the, I mean, honestly, the, the very best evidence of the fact that you are a Christian is that you live your life as a Christian. And that's simply what, what Paul is praying, that sixth element is is Christ-likeness. And that seventh one, I'll just give you that very quickly. You're going to pray for people. You pray for a life that is lived to God's glory. That is a good thing to pray. It's a general statement of, of praying. You'll find it in verse 11 at the very end. Notice what he says in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, remember, imputed righteousness, to the glory and the praise of of God, God's glory. We, we want to live our lives for God's glory. You pray for me, you pray that my life would actually glorify God in everything. Isn't that what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's a big wide uh, uh, birth there, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. So if you're going to to pray for people, those seven things are really a great place to start. Lifting up your children, uh, graduates, your friends, other Christians, praying for pastors here that uh, we might, as the, as the catechism said, we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word that is good and I pray you help us in all of these things, these seven things. Help us to grow in Christian maturity and become people of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.